Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today's topic is politics in the pulpit. Today, we're going to discuss these things, and Pastor Aaron, you want to take it away? Yes. Well, full disclosure, first of all, I don't have a pulpit. But anyway, we use the word pulpit to refer to the preaching ministry. I know most guys probably preach behind a pulpit. Some For some reason or another, 20 some odd years ago when I was a younger preacher, I just got used to preaching with my pages in my Bible. So that's what I've always done. So I'm not as comfortable behind a pulpit as I am without one. But yeah, we want to talk about politics in the pulpit on this podcast because oftentimes I hear Christians say, Politics has no place in the pulpit, meaning that when we're preaching, when we're leading people in worship, we shouldn't be talking about what's going on in culture and in the world around us, especially in government edicts and bills and bylaws and you know, these sorts of things. And so we want to um, we want to discuss that today. And I think it'll be a, an interesting conversation and obviously super relevant given all of the different issues that are before Christians and culture today. Mm-hmm. So maybe to get us started, we could talk about what the basic views are, the, the, the variety of options available to us when we cover this. So what are the basic Christian views that or the views that Christians tend to have about politics in the pop, pulpit? Well, I think without being super nuanced, there's sort of three general responses that people have to the question, is it appropriate to discuss politics in the pulpit? The the first one would be uh, politics has no place in the pulpit, period. And I think this flows from the viewpoint that politics is neutral or somehow political issues are distinct from the kind of things that we would be talking about from the word of God. So I've heard preachers even say, you know, there's there's no place to talk about cultural issues or, or um, uh, public policy issues in, in our preaching ministry. Also, sometimes people um, are, are reluctant to address politics because it seems kind of hopeless. You know, like we know that the gospel transforms people's lives and we know what heaven is all about. So why not just kind of take a break on Sunday from all the rigmarole of the world and focus on a message of hope and freedom for the future. So I think that would be another part of it. And then the third would be, uh, there's a lot of people that don't actually see the gospel as having anything to do with the structures and cultures of the world. So I think this is a false notion. Uh, the gospel, as I see it, is the, the, the message that is woven through the whole of scripture, the good news that Christ is King, God is our Lord, And that he is in the process of redeeming and has redeemed a people for himself from a lost and broken world. And the the, the zenith or climax of that in in our lives, obviously, is our conversion experience. But many of us grew up in churches where when we we heard the word gospel, it only referred to our conversion experience. Mm -hmm. That, you know, when we're born again, when we become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the gospel is not just about our conversion experience. It's about the lordship of Christ over all creation, over all the world. It's Colossians 1.16. He is, he is Lord over all the rulers, the dominions, the authorities of the earth. And this, this is good news. And um, so that would be kind of one category that, that I, I've seen and heard, this notion that politics has no place in the pulpit, period. The second would be, I think, maybe a little bit more in 
in the United States, but on some level in Canada as well, that um, we should have sort of a partisan allegiance to one party. So this mm -hmm. notion that there's there's one party that tends to represent Christian values, so that's that's who we're going to support regardless of its policies, its leaders, regardless whether it's doing what we want it to or not. So there's sort of hyper allegiance to a particular party, almost giving them a bit of a messianic complex. And I think that's been a problem in Canada, like where Christians have tended to lean toward like the conservative party, even though the conservative party as it currently exists is more liberal um, than the liberal party was, let's say 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. But a lot of folks are like, well, you we can't split the votes. So we got to keep voting for a certain party. And there's a, there's a certain partisan allegiance to it, uh, like a non-critical partisan allegiance to a particular brand or a particular color. And um, for me, both of those first two views are not biblical views. So I would reject the idea that the pulpit is no place to discuss politics. And I would reject the notion that we should just you know, hitch our wagon to one political party and support them at all costs. I, I'm more interested in preaching, so this would be the third view, in preaching the word of God into culture, and that includes addressing political issues and confronting power. Hmm. And I see this in scripture. When Ahab viola violated his sphere of authority by arranging for the death of Naboth, uh, and he was successful in doing that, because first he made an offer of purchase and sale. Naboth didn't accept it, and he shouldn't have because under Jewish law, Ahab had no business buying the land that was designated for Naboth's family and descendants. Uh, but when he did that and ultimately had Naboth falsely accused and killed and then seized his land, he was confronted by Elijah, the prophet of God. And Elijah confronted him because he wasn't confronting the fact that he was a king. He wasn't confronting the fact that he had political power. He was confronting the fact that he abused his political power to seize land hmm. that he didn't have the right to do. So I see that as a, a great example. And there, there's others where uh, godly people speak out boldly against tyranny or the abuse of power for people in political office. Mm -hmm. So that's helpful. So basically we got the one view. It's not at all, no place the other view yeah. that's, you know, one party that kind of dominates than the third view where we're we're preaching the word of God into the culture, speaking to the pol political issues, right? Yeah, it's driven not so much by partisan concerns or by partisan politics. It's driven by the issues. So we're speaking to the issues. So whether the blue party, the red party, the purple party, whatever it is, transgresses God's law, we speak against that. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we commend them if they make good decisions. We honor them if they make good decisions. And then on issues that don't relate to, to morality, we have a bit of a, a different approach. Mm -hmm. So what we probably would be blessed to do is to define, define politics yeah. for people. Because, be, you know, many Christians, the word politics might seem something completely removed from the gospel, from preaching and the role of the pastor. So can we, can we define that term? Yeah. So I have my own view of in my head space of what politics is. But I thought, well, I'm just going to kind of look, look up a few definitions online. And it's interesting when you look up definitions – of politics, it's actually pretty vague. It's it's a vague word. So if you look up Webster's Dictionary, I brought a couple of these along with me. Webster's says it's um, activities that relate to influencing the actions and policies of a government 
or getting and keeping power in government. So that's kind of vague. It goes on to say the opinions that someone has about what should be done by the government, a person's political thoughts or opinions. So again, kind of vague. If you look up um, your dictionary, it uh, this is a, a site called Your Dictionary. It refers to politics as political opinions, principles, or party connections. Uh, Definitions.net calls it the profession devoted to governing and to political affairs. So they're actually using the word po political to try to define politics. So it, it, the, the point I want to make there is that politics isn't uh, isn't just one thing. It's It's not just building roads. It's not just building hospitals. It's not just taxation issues. And it's not just moral issues. And it's not just life or death issues. Politics, broadly speaking, sort of refers to just the general actions and activities and legislative processes of a government. And broadly speaking, then, we could just say, if we wanted like just a super short, clear, crisp definition, politics is essentially the decisions that governments make. So politics is the decisions that governments make. And so that's kind of how I would define it. Now, here, here's the, um, here's kind of where I want to go with this. So let's suppose that the decisions that government make, the politics, is about the colors of stop signs. So most stop signs, I think, are all, maybe they all are red and white. But let's say there's a political discussion. We should change stop signs to blue and white, or we should change it to orange and white or yellow and white. Well, the, some of those ideas might be better than others, but I don't really care. Because I would say in that case, it's morally neutral. Mm -hmm. Like I don't really care what the color of stop signs. Someone needs to make that decision. Are we going to have red and white stop signs or orange and white stop signs? Okay, whatever. Or let's say that a particular town or municipality is building a public swimming pool and there's big debate. Well, should it be you know 100 foot by 50 foot pool or should it be 120 foot by 30 foot? I'm not going to clutter up my pulpit time talking about morally neutral political decisions pertaining to the color of signs or whether a road has asphalt or concrete on it or whether the curbs are six inches high or they kind of just uh, you know slo slope away to grade I, I don't those kind of political decisions I'm I'm pretty comfortable just leaving it to our elected officials to discuss and in that respect someone would be right if a pastor's up waxing eloquent. Oh, I don't like the new color of stop signs in our municipality. What do you guys think? You know, the Bible has something to say about that and weighing in on stuff that doesn't matter. That, that is not a good use of your pulpit time. But if, if politicians, and this is, this is like so critical. I think this is really important for people to understand. If politicians are using their power to redefine marriage or to define the nature of church meetings, mm -hmm. Or to define, um, you know, to, maybe they were in governments in the past have done this where they force people to be sterilized and so don't have children. Or let's say a tyrannical government is murdering their citizens. Well, now we, we're not dealing with partisan issues anymore. Like the color of stop signs is a partisan issue. The, the size of a public swimming pool is a partisan issue. You have different legitimate opinions on those things. I don't really care at the end of the day what decision you make. And even if I did care, it's not the place for the pulp place in the pulp for me to address it. But if 
the state in their political decisions is addressing issues of life or death, right or wrong, while we very much should and actually have to, as Christian mm-hmm. churches and pastors, address these things in our preaching ministry. Mm-hmm. I think that that is very, very helpful because it it uh, makes it clear what is kind of not useful in the top in in uh, the pulpit. And obviously this year, it's kind of interesting because there's been some issues that have come to light that have been very, very relevant for us to talk about. And so maybe you could li- highlight what are some of the current examples of the political matters that Christians in Canada and even in, in the U.S. should be discussing, discussing and preaching about. Yeah. So, yeah, this isn't specific to our our country. We're here in Ontario, Canada, but this, this is... Um, relevant to Christians in all Western nations and even outside of Western nations. So again, the, the, the pulpit is not a place for discussing the size of public swimming pools or the color of stop signs, but it is a place for addressing abortion, which some would say, oh, that's just a political issue. No, it's about killing children. Mm-hmm. That's an issue we have to address. Medical assistance in dying. In other words, euthanasia or suicide. Oh, that's just a political issue. I don't want to hear that from the pulpit on Sunday. No, we preach to these issues because they're matters of life and death. Same-sex marriage. Well, that's just people's opinion. No, it has an effect on God's view of men and women in their relationship to one another in creation and in human sexuality. We will preach on those sorts of things. All the different, you know, non-creational sexual perversion we see in culture. So we had this um, law approved in our Canadian Senate uh, this week, and it's called the Conversion Therapy Bill, Bill C-4. Essentially, it declares uh, the Bible a myth, um, the idea that heterosexuality is normative. They, they declare that to be a myth, believe it or not. And the bill is um, green lights, uh, transgender activists to continue to try to convert um, heterosexual people to their viewpoint, but forbids heterosexual people from trying to convert transgender people to their viewpoint. Mm-hmm. So that's one example. We have, of course, we've been dealing with the pride movements and the LGBTQ movements for for a long time. So all of these movements that sort of fall under the umbrella of what I would call non-creational sexual indoctrination, we're going to speak to those issues. <laughs> and if someone comes into a church or we don't, we don't discuss politics. Oh, you don't discuss human sexuality? Really? The Bible discusses it. So you better be discussing it. So we're going to discuss that. Freedom of speech, especially as it relates to proclamation of the gospel, preaching um, the, the, full, the full counsel of God's word. Um, many would uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's an under, maybe more than an undercurrent. There's definitely a a movement in culture to muzzle free speech to determine what what can be said and what can't be said. So we're going to address issues like that. Um, we're going to address segregation and discrimination. I think that's an important thing mm-hmm. to address. We're going to address racial segregation and discrimination, and we're going to address medical segregation and discrimination. Now one or the other, we're going to address both of them to the degree that they're legitimate in a particular culture, city, or context. Mm-hmm. We're, going to dis- we're going to address globalism. Globalism isn't a morally neutral concept. In the Tower of Babel, God established nationhood, and each nation has its borders and its boundaries, 
and we and its language and god has established the world because of the brokenness of humanity we he's divided us up into nations globalism i think is a is an attempt to return to sort of that tower of babel ideology where we you know we can do better together but what happens is when people get together and they're they're a little too united around their own ingenuity and their own ideas god is excluded from the mix so if um, we, you know, we had a situation where we could actually have a global community where everyone was worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be great? But we got to wait for that till heaven. So we would address things like that. We would address communism because communism is ultimately not about communalism. It's about consolidating power and the party leadership and subjugating the masses to tyranny and inhumane treatment. We would want to address issues like just war. Wars take place in our world all the time, and we have something to say about that. Some wars are just, some wars are unjust. Uh, some some wars are necessary in a broken world. Some wars aren't. So we as a Christian church should always feel free to speak truth to power. If we see that the power structures of our world are taking advantage of others, are trying to accumulate land or resources immorally for immoral causes, we would want to speak to that. And then we have the whole discussion about penology. Penology is the whole discussion of, of penalties, criminal justice. Now, it is the state's sphere of authority to preside over criminal justice, to wield the sword, to punish the evildoer and reward the righteous. But let's suppose a state is giving a slap on the wrist to pedophiles or murderers or rapists while the Christian church would address those things and say, look, the just punishment, uh, you know, eye for an eye, uh, Genesis 9 theology is if, if anyone sheds the blood of a man by man shall his blood be shed. So we would speak into that or, or so in other words, if, if we see a government being too lenient in its sentencing, you know, we preach on these issues to help shape cultural notions of penology. Likewise, if a government is taking it too far, you know, they're chopping people's heads off for stealing a candy bar. We would speak into that. We'd say, you know, that that's that's too extreme of a punishment for the crime. So the Christian church, Christian people, biblical thinkers, theologians, we we preach to these issues to help to inform our people as to how they should think through them and respond, but also to help to shape culture and contribute to culture so that increasingly culture is governed by and affected by the the laws of God, the word of God, the principles of God's word. And out of that, there's greater stability and blessing. And actually, it, it creates a great um, ground, uh, a great platform for us to preach the conversion mm -hmm. um, message of the gospel as well. Mm -hmm. As you went through those uh, those various topics, my, my mind immediately went to, I think a lot of people would just rather stick their head in the sand and pretend these don't exist. Yeah, but the reality uh, is that the people in your churches are going to formulate thoughts and opinions based on these things. Mm -hmm. They're in, they're, they are encountering them in the world, and we need to bring a Christian worldview uh, to bear on them. A friend of mine made an insightful comment uh, last week where he was talking about how some churches are engaged in the cultural wars and some supposedly aren't engaged in the cultural wars. Or another way to put that, some would say some churches are engaged in the political wars and some aren't engaged in the political wars. But what's interesting is 
in actual fact, I think all churches are engaged in the cultural wars and the political wars, either by opposing injustice, tyranny, mm-hmm. or by their silence, they're actually endorsing it, or they're actually endorsing tyranny, statism, totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's possible to actually be neutral politically. You you are going to, by your preaching, whether it's good preaching or bad preaching, your words or your silence, communicate to your people political matters mm-hmm. where you stand on them. So if there's a, let's say babies are being butchered, and you never speak to the issue because you don't want to be quote unquote political, well, you're actually speaking to the issue by your silence. Mm-hmm. You're saying to people, it doesn't matter. If you think that compliance is, compliance to government edicts is neutral, no, you're communicating rightly or wrongly. You're communicating a particular position mm-hmm. that says, this is what I think the government's power includes. So if you're if you're every time the government says jump you jump, every time the government says sit down you sit down, you are actually communicating to your people. You think you're being politically neutral, but you're communicating to your people that you're okay with the government or state having that kind of authority over your life. So I I just don't think realistically you can be neutral on these subjects, even if you try your best to be neutral on these subjects. Mm-hmm. You're you're saying something. Mm-hmm. So it's almost as if politics has found its way into the pulpit one way or another. Yeah. So you may as well bring it out and yeah. <laughs> address it biblically. Um, so Aaron, describe your understanding of the state of modern politics. So what is the predominant worldview or the ideology that seems to drive most political decisions that you would you would see? Well, if we were broadcasting from a Islamic Republic, we'd answer this question differently, but we're broadcasting from a Western nation that has been historically impacted by Christianity. The, the way we would put that is like it's a, it historically was a Christianized nation. We're not saying it was a Christian nation and that everyone was a Christian or that everyone that says they're a Christian is a true Christian, but it's Christianized. There's a certain sense in which the supremacy of God is recognized, law is based upon creational biblical norms, et cetera. And um, that was sort of where where things used to be, but now we have a very different worldview. So I, I think it's a combination of statism. So statism sees the the authority to make decisions on all matters of life, death, culture, right, wrong, as coming from the state, specifically within the state from the government or in some uh, countries, perhaps the the king or the queen or the dictator that runs the country. So we have in our country a strong, uh, I, I would say the dominant worldview in politics today is statism where people in positions of power think and are convinced that they have authority over every area of life. And that includes life and death, what you can say and can't say, defining the boundaries of sexuality, et cetera. Out of that, then we have rising totalitarianism. So the way I see it, you know, and other political philosophers could differ from me, but the way I see it is statism is a broader term that sees the state as having power and authority over all of life. 
And when you're in a statist regime, then you've created the opportunity for totalitarianism. So totalitarianism is kind of a political philosophy that applies total power to every sphere and every aspect of life. So now you're told what you can think, what you can say, where you can go, maybe who you can marry, what you can eat. You know, you, the, the list is potentially endless. This is grounded, of course, in another uh, worldview, which is humanism. So humanism sees humanity as the ultimate authority for human behavior. It's a very selfish sort of we-centered, me-centered worldview, which doesn't allow for input from the divine. So God, divine law, sacred scripture are pushed aside under humanism. Man becomes, or more, if you want to be more progressive, people kind becomes a law unto themselves or its selves <laughs> or <laughs> their <they> selves. selves. <laughs> and so that's a problem. And then we also have this added element of identity politics where people are reduced down to like labels. So you are a gay person. You are a straight person. You are a white male. You know, you, it's very reductionistic. So you're reduced down to a, a particular identity and then you're either idolized or vilified, idolized or vilified by culture. Right now, the least popular person to be in culture would be a white, uh, middle-aged, Anglo-Saxon, uh, English-speaking Christian male who has some sort of authority in culture. So that's that's public enemy number one in our in our mm -hmm. community. In the past, it might have been being a black man who's living on a plantation in Georgia. And another generation, it was an Asian immigrant who was working on the railroads to build the railroad to the West. So every generation sort of creates its own villains and vilifies certain groups. And it's just become almost like a politically trendy to do that before. That, that kind of identity politics, I think, has always happened because of pr human prejudice and discrimination. But now it's it's become a almost like a professionalized political ideology mm. where especially traditionalists are vilified and you know progressives are are put forward as uh, you know the in, the enlightened elite that decide the course and shape of history and culture and civilization and law and education and medicine, et cetera. So these things all have a massive titanic domineering influence on modern politics in Western nations. Mm -hmm. So as we think about that, what very practically, if we want to address these issues, how can the church engage the state in speaking truth, as you say, truth to power? Yeah. So we've identified false views. We've identified what po politics is and given some examples of the political issues we should be speaking to. And we've identified elements of the dominant worldview in West, Western culture. But I don't want to just end with sort of an expose on what our culture is like. I want to give people some practical uh, input as to how they can respond. And, and as I've been thinking about this, I've identified five responses that 
a person can take, depending on the circumstances, to political issues and culture. So when when you're speaking truth to power, the um, the first thing that you might want to consider doing is simply advising the state. So a biblical example of that is Joseph in Egypt. So Joseph was sent to Egypt unjustly at the hands of his jealous brothers. He found himself going through a whole series of temptations and circumstances and trials and suffering. But at the end of the day, he was elevated to a position of political influence. And the the, the ruler of Egypt discovered through Joseph's input and counsel and prophecy that there was going to be a famine in the land. So now we have a political crisis and people's lives potentially were on the line, you know, seven years later. So Joseph advises the state. He finds himself in a position of political influence and he gives sound advice to the state and offers his services and his services are accepted and he's able to bring benefit to the state and benefit to the people by accumulating grain over several years and then distributing to the people during during the famine. That ultimately leads to the reunification of him and his, his brothers. So we don't just need to, we, we shouldn't just reduce politics in the pulpit to confronting, 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 calling them out, calling them out, calling them names, you know, challenging, attacking. How about engaging with political structures? So if Christian people have the wherewithal and the giftedness, run for political office. Find your, put your, uh, apply for jobs if you're able to in politically oriented establishments and offer advice, offer input, offer godly wisdom. So that's, that I, that I hope would be the starting point. Now, it's very difficult right now because I think we're in sort of a, a crisis in our culture where God fearing, the, the God fearing Josephs of our generation are literally being tossed out of the political establishment. Mm-hmm. That could change. Who knows? But let's start off with, committing ourselves where we have opportunity to giving good advice to the state on issues where we have good advice to offer. So that's step number one. Step number two is to confront the state when it transgresses its authority. So I'm going to give two biblical examples of that. When Pharaoh, a later Pharaoh, had imprisoned and was using the Jewish people for slaves to build his pyramids and whatnot, Moses comes into Pharaoh's court, and of course, he had some standing there because he'd been raised by previous Pharaoh's daughter, and he confronts injustices against the Jews. So he's confronting. He's he's essentially your prophet, your preacher, your pulpiteer, but he's stepping into the Pharaoh's houses of governance and saying, this is wrong. Let my people go. So right there, you you can't say politics has no place in the pulpit. If people are being abused or there's tyranny, slavery, abortion, whatever it might be, the prophetic voice speaks out against tyranny and and confronts power. Mm -hmm. Second illustration I gave it earlier is, again, just to remind the audience, when Elijah confronts the abuse of power by Ahab by stealing Naboth's vineyard, he doesn't say, well... That's just politics. That's yeah. there, I'm going to go preach from uh, three chapters of Genesis today, just sort of give a, 
benign overview of what the Bible says, what the Bible says, what the Bible says. I mean, God forbid we ever take the Bible and apply it to culture. No, no. He takes the word of God and he confronts Ahab with it. So step number two is to confront abuses of power. Third is to appeal to law. So if you have laws in your country, and we all still do, that are still based on the Judeo-Christian values and ethic, and they're moral and just, they're to the advantage of the people, they restrain evil, use them to your advantage. So appeal to law. We need more Christians to become you know, cultural lawyers, I guess, lay lawyers, to familiarize themselves with constitutions and bylaws and criminal code. We've been able to use that to our advantage. A biblical example of this is in Acts 25, when Paul is making his defense against Festus, and he says in Acts 25.8, I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. And then in that passage there, Festus is wanting to do the Jews a favor, it says. And so then Paul challenges him and he says, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? So he says this to Paul. And I just want to read verses 10 through 12, because this is pretty interesting. Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have done, I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right, that's a moral word, and it's also a legal word, to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. So Paul didn't say, well, let me just preach a sermon on how to be born again. Let me give you a documentary uh, or, or doctrinal treatise on the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. He actually is appealing to law. He now good law is based in some way, shape, or form on God's law, but he, he's he's not he's not sort of going going Bible on them. He's not going scripture on them. He's actually appealing to the law and his rights in order to have a hearing with the higher court. So then it says in verse twelve, after Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, "You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go." So that's a win for Paul. He appeals to the higher magistrate and ultimately is uh, is vindicated. Now, he's not vindicated forever because years later he would be put to death. So this would be the third step. So we we want to uh, you know be wise in our approach. We're giving advice. That's step number one. We're confronting that step number two. We're appealing to law, using it to our advantage. Third step is to disobey the state. So if the state, if the government, if the political establishment is asking us to do something that's contrary to God's word and law and principles, then we disobey that. So two classic examples also from Acts, Acts 5, where the apostles are told, nah, you're not, you're not preaching anymore. And they're like, yeah, we're doing it anyway. We will obey man or we will obey God rather than man. That's a great example in uh, Acts 9, Paul's in Damascus. He's preaching. He also ticks off the authorities. They try to chase him down. He's lowered in a wall over a basket, or he's lowered uh, yeah, over a wall in a basket and escapes into the night. So he lives to preach another day. Mm -hmm. These are examples of civil disobedience by godly people. And, and some have argued, well, 
That was just the Sanhedrin. They didn't really have political authority. Yeah, they did have political authority. They were the lesser magistrates in Palestine at the time, the province of, I think it was called Palestinia, and in Damascus, where Jewish people lived. The Roman government gave a certain measure of authority over more minor issues to try to help to control the people. And the Pharisees gladly served their overlords. So Paul is being accused and attacked and the apostles are being, uh, are, are trying to be muzzled by those lesser magistrates as we'd call them. And they just, they're just being like, buzz off. We're doing it anyway. So disobeying the state. But here's the final one that I think my audience might feel a little uncomfortable with. And that is, that we need to also be prepared to suffer at the hands of the state. So there are times when we've appealed to law, we've had the conversations, we've confronted, we've advised, we've we've done all of those things, we've practiced civil disobedience in in favor of divine obedience, and we still are getting hammered. Mm-hmm. Well, we need to be prepared to suffer for our faith. Stephen, an early believer was stoned for his faith in Acts chapter 7. This was prior to Paul's conversion, so Paul was sort of overseeing that. Paul himself would later be executed. Now, this is not recorded in Scripture, but as best as we know from written history, Paul was executed under the the, um, reign of uh, Nero around 68 AD. So he ultimately died for his faith and not just his some benign faith that he practiced in house churches or in catacombs, but a faith that he lived out and preached into the public realm. And there's there's many other examples of this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was confronting the political establishment of World War II Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Men in our country now are confronting the tyranny of statism and totalitarianism and this medical dictatorship that we're living under and taking some heat for that. And we don't cut and run and we don't take the view, well, we're just going to keep preaching moral niceties about how to love your neighbor and get saved. We're not going to talk about the elephant in the room, which is people losing their job or tyranny or medical apartheid. No, we're going to preach to these issues because they have moral elements to them and they 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 need to be addressed and we need to help our people to think through these issues critically in order that they can make it through another day mm-hmm. last night i was reading from a, a book called jesus freaks oh, okay. uh, it talks about stories of martyrs and came across this one story of a guy named richard wormbrin which many people would know as the founder of voice of the martyrs and i believe it's in 1945 there was uh communist control taking over in russia okay and there was a, a time when all the pastors, like churchmen, were actually standing up and praising communism and saying how it could kind of coexist. And Richard Wormbrand's wife, I believe it was, basically said, you got to say something. And so he, he got up and preached basically the truth, saying that that's not the how it is. <laughs> uh, and because of that, he became marked and, and right. in the end got tortured for it. Mm-hmm. But I think what kind of courage it takes to stand up when a lot of people are just silent in the pulpit. Right. And so maybe you can speak for just a a minute or two about how do you develop that courage to be the first one if you're in your church and nobody else is saying anything? Mm -hmm. um, How do you, because I feel like once you've done it and you've kind of gone out on a limb, 
it's easier, but yeah. kind of breaking the ground courageously uh, can be challenging. Yeah. Well, we know that fear begats fear and courage begats courage. Timidity begats timidity and boldness begats boldness. We, we just know this. Uh, wisdom begats wisdom. Foolishness begats foolishness. We were very much a communal people and we are very much impacted by the behavior of other people around us. So in our culture and country, there's a huge fear narrative being pub pumped out by the media. And this has affected Christian people. It's very sad to see Christian people, you know, recoil when you go to shake their hand, jump back, don't touch me, don't get near me. Cause they're, they're terrified of death and it's, it's not even rational. Mm -hmm. It's not even based upon their own lived experience. It's irrational. And it's, it's certainly not godly because it, it reflects a lack of resurrection hope. So we, We've seen this in our culture where fear begats fear. And when you tell people the same thing over and over again, you're going to die, you're going to die, stay home, stay safe, stay away from people, this this causes folks to be quite concerned about it. But at the same time, if you preach boldly and consistently, over time you you shape the worldview. And some people don't want to hear it anymore. Like we've, we've had people leave our own church. It's just, I can't handle it anymore. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Well, you can't avoid it. Sorry, this is your time. This is your day. You're going to hear it someplace, somehow, sometime by somebody. You're going to hear that fear narrative. What we're trying to do is instill within people boldness and courage. So boldness and courage doesn't, it, it's not, doesn't mean that you have to be a tough guy. It doesn't mean that you have to be an extrovert. It doesn't mean that you have to be in an official position of leadership. You have to be driven by your your principles and your your convictions and not be blown to and fro by the circumstances of life. We live in a, a world where, uh, I, I would say even in churches, where people feel very uncomfortable with the idea of certain things being black and white. It's like everything's sort of gray. Well, yeah, there's some things that we're not super sure about in scripture and in the Christian life. But do you know what the most important things are? Like, are, are you black and white mm -hmm. on who your king is, <laughs> on the way of salvation, on what the church even is, on what your eternal hope is founded in. These simple but profound truths, who our God is, what he has done for us, what he has called us to, what it means to follow him and where we are headed, sort of those big questions, those simple fundamental questions. If you don't, if you don't have those locked down, if you're still fuzzy on what those are, you're not clear on your purpose in life, your mission in life, then you're going to be tossed to and fro by empty philosophies, mm -hmm. deceptive doctrines, et cetera. So courage is, is fundamentally grounded in truth. And the more you study truth and you're like, yeah, this is true. And I'm, I'm not, I don't just believe it with my brain, but I, I've lived it out. It's, ex, it's experiential truth. It's convicted. I've been convicted about it, then it's, it's easier to, to um, respond in the moment. So we, we need more people who sort of fan the flame of their own convictions mm. and uh, their own beliefs and really know who they are, who God is, and where they're going. And again, when you get those things down, then a lot of these lesser issues sort of take care of themselves. So for example, over the past year and a half, as we've sought to exercise wisdom and how to respond to various tyrannical edicts, things that offend our sensibilities or respond to lies. 
you know, in terms of the details of how do we communicate this to our people and what's the timing of it? What, what's, what's the specific strategy we're going to employ? Yeah, that, that, that takes some thoughtfulness and some discussion and there's different ways to, to respond to these kind of circumstances. And I understand that if a church is like, well, we're just not sure, like, should we email our people? Should we, should we, um, go into small groups? Should we go underground? You know, like these minor details, let's mm-hmm. say of communication. Okay. I understand there might be some confusion, some incompetency or some bad plays in that regard. But if you're a year and a half into this and you still aren't sure who the Lord of the church is, mm-hmm. you're 18 months behind schedule. Mm-hmm. You should have known that before. I guess you're 20 months behind now. You should have known that before. These are things that we all knew before, we should have known before. Now we're just seeking to apply the reality of those beliefs to the circumstances. But I, I have this sense that for a lot of Christians, their beliefs are more benign. Like they believe, oh yeah, Christ is Lord, but they don't experientially believe that. They haven't mm-hmm. they've been convicted by it. They're not living it out. It's not mm-hmm. reflective of their behavior. Um, maybe a final thought, Chris, is, you know, in the scriptures where it talks about people having different spiritual gifts, so some are called to teach mm-hmm. and administrate, some encourage and counsel and discern and whatnot. I don't want to be uh, dogmatic on this, but I think that's also a recognition of different personalities and different mm-hmm. gift sets. So in life, if you're, let's say, wired to be an encourager, let's say. So you could be an introvert or extrovert, be an encourager, but chances are you're going to be the kind of person as like empathy, discernment. You, you think a lot about people. If you're a teacher, on the other hand, you're going to be doing those things, but maybe to a lesser degree, you're more of a conceptual thinker. You're a student. You, you, you know, you're, you're interested in words and how to communicate things properly. So the Lord is going to use uh, an encourager and a teacher differently and their personality and their history is also going to be part of how the Lord uses them. So when, when we're in a crisis and you look at all the different personalities in a church, yeah, you're going to have some people that are just naturally more courageous people. It's not necessarily even a spiritual gift. It's just their personality, but it also could be part of their spiritual gift or the office that they hold. That's fine. Some people are going to be a little more reluctant to push back, to speak out. But what we want to do is we want to look for good people that have boldness and wisdom and courage and mimic their way of life and learn from them. Just like if we're in a crisis and we're not looking for someone with courage, we're looking for someone that could just encourage us. We're going to look for people that have that spiritual gift. So this is why I've been encouraging people. If you're, I hate to say this, but if you're in a church where your leaders are not courageous people, you're just hurting yourself. Like it's, it's time to find a church where there's some courageous leaders that will help you to think through these issues. Now I'd rather that the leaders that aren't courageous would become courageous, mm-hmm. right? I'd rather, I'd rather that, uh, I'd rather that happen. I'd rather there be some repentance and some recognition of cowardice and forward momentum. But if that doesn't take place, find courageous leaders and get behind them. They need you and and you need them. And then as you speak truth to power, you want the Lord to obviously go before and, and do a work that only he can do through his grace and mercy to bring about revival or judgment or whatever mm-hmm. it be that God might be trying to accomplish through his plan. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Aaron. This is the Leadership Now podcast that's on CJXC Radio on 
uh, Canada's constant Christian companion, 11 a.m. Tuesdays and rebroadcast 11 p.m. Thursdays, as well as on the Fight, Laugh, Feast app. Uh, Make sure to download that from the Fight, Laugh, Feast network and you can hear this podcast as well as many other great Canadian podcasts. Friends from the Ezra Institute and the Rebel Network are on there, as well as a host of other great uh, U.S. podcasts. And you can make sure to tune in next week. Please subscribe, share, like, do all the good stuff. And we'll tune in next week for another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock. Oh, 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 oh,